Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Forgiveness is an independent process. So we're not asked ever in my teaching to ever go up to the person and speak to them. This is an old way of doing this. This is kind of like this indoctrinated view of we're blaming other people for how we feel. We blame circumstances for how we feel. We're constantly putting our fingers out there, right? Saying, my life is miserable because of you. I am happy because of you. It's that style of forgiveness perpetuates the narrative, right? So we're releasing that. We're being radically responsible for our lives. We're being radically responsible for our happiness. So what does that mean? That means you have to do the forgiveness between you and you. Hey, everybody, and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former D1 athlete and mental health and body image advocate. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and the realest conversations around everything and anything. Now let's get real. Welcome back to Real Pod. We are here this week with another oh so fabulous guest, or actually, you know, maybe I should say an oh so sassy guest. If you are feeling in a slump on your inner journey, or you don't even know how to start that journey, right? You're seeing all these people who are meditating and they're super enlightened. You're like, how the heck do I do that? Well, today's guest is going to help you with that. His name is Saw DeSimone. He is a spiritual guide, meditation teacher, and transformational speaker. Saw has studied with the best, his holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama. I cannot even get over that because the Dalai Lama is like the most incredible human and and he studied with him. And Saw was cited as a radical spiritual guide by Deepak Chopra. Saw travels the world to reinvent the idea of bringing joy into the healing process with his sassy approach. And through his work, Saw challenges mental health stigmas, which we love that, snaps for that. He advocates for body confidence. Oh, we also love that. He advocates for inclusivity of the LGBTQ and POC communities, which we love the most. And his book, Spiritually Sassy, is out everywhere now. I have been on my own inner journey for a while now, and it's tough, you guys. Like when you turn to look inside, it can feel like it never ends. Like you just, you keep finding things that are wrong with you and that you need to work on and that you need to heal. Like there's no light at the end of the tunnel, it seems. And Saw is going to help me and he's going to help you today with the incredible things he's going to teach us about forgiveness, how to process tough emotions, and how to receive love from others. Before we get into this episode, I want to give a shout out to Cassie. Cassie took the time to rate and review the podcast, which truly means the world to me. And she wrote, I don't usually listen to podcasts, but I can't pass up RealPod. The guests that Victoria interviews are amazing alone, but the questions that she asks makes the podcast so much more interesting. I love listening to the open and vulnerable conversations, and it makes me feel like my emotions and feelings are valid. She even goes a step further to provide solutions on how to get out of any slump you're having. I love your show and social media posts, Vic. You are awesome and so important. Thank you, Cassie. This means the world to me. I'm so glad that you love the show. I even feel more complimented that you don't listen to podcasts, but you listen to real pod. <laughs> I totally know the feeling. I have like some podcasts and I'm like, okay, these are the podcasts I listen to every week. And then the rest of the podcast world, I'm like, I don't even know what's going on. But Cassie, I am so honored. Thank you for leaving this review. It means the world. If you guys want to help out the show and you know, express your support for RealPod. You can take less than 20 seconds to go to iTunes and rate and review this podcast. If you can just rate it, that takes like less than 10 seconds. And if you want to leave it a review, that would mean the world to me. I literally scroll through them every day. I love hearing from you and you just might be 
the review next week. And even if you're just listening to this podcast, thank you. Thank you for listening. I know you're busy. I know you have a lot going on and you chose to turn this on today. So thank you. And I'm so appreciative of that. All right, we're gonna head right into this episode today with Saadi Simone as he helps us learn to forgive and heal our strained relationships. So thank you so much for joining me today. I have been looking forward to this conversation. I couldn't tell if I had especially good vibes today because I knew I would be speaking with you, but um, I'm just looking very forward to this conversation. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me on my love. I'm looking of, talking to you too. Of course. Of course. I mean, I just want to start with the obvious. What does it mean to be spiritually sassy? <laughs> uh, so there's many ways to describe this the way that the term sort of came about you know if I'm going to give you the sort of the longer answer it was me being sick and tired do we curse on a podcast yes you can be 100% yourself if that means curse fucking do it so I was sick and fucking tired of having to living out some someone else's stories of what's being spiritual meant I felt like I should look like a certain way. I should dress in a certain way. I should talk a certain way. I should eat a certain way. I should do everything in a certain way. And that was what I call the zombie zen. You know, I feel like the, the, the places and the people that I was sort of following around and, uh, and studying with, and, and these are impeccable teachers, but just the message that how the, how the message was landing for me wasn't supporting me to be more joyful, more fabulous, more powerful, more bolder and louder and flamboyant. It wasn't supporting my queerness. It was supporting me to become small and, and not reflect back when someone was looking drop dead gorgeous or when music was beautiful to dance to or, you know, just a variety of things. I felt like it were, they were stripped away from the spiritual path because the, the, the teachers and the people that I was surrounding myself with, that's what they needed during their journey. And what I call that style of being on a spiritual path is I call the zombie Zen and it works for some people. And trust me, it worked for me. I needed to sort of like lose my sass to then find it's real. It's, it's fullest, most powerful uh, version of it. So spiritually sassy is, you know, feeling great, looking great and doing amazing in the world. It's spiritually sassy is making altruism sexy. It's making selfless, you know, service sexy and, and cool from a very sort of baseline. It's like when you piece apart the word spiritual and sassy, sassy is the playful and the spiritual path requires discipline. So it's a playful discipline to become free. It's a playful discipline to uncover your heart. Does that make sense? Definitely. And I love that there's a sense of uniqueness to being spiritually sassy because I relate to this idea that, okay, well, then I have to wake up at 5 a.m. and I have to meditate three times a day and I have to eat vegan and I have to do all this stuff if I want to be my highest self. And a lot of times it's just not possible for people. Maybe that's not really what's best for me. Maybe I can't do it that way. So I love that it kind of is personalizing spirituality for people. That's right. That's right. And reminding people that like where your joy lives, that's your path to freedom. And also, you know, reminding people that like what we've been told equates to spirituality oftentimes was not thought out for the modern world, you know, wasn't thought out for a world where we have so much um, racism and homophobia. It was thought out for a world that was very different than ours. And it's, it's spirituality needs an upgrade. And that's what the spiritually sassy, the movement and the state of being that we're carving out with this, with the book and the app and all the things we're doing. Uh, it's reminding people that like, if you're not becoming more playful, honey, if you're not laughing more, if you're not dancing more, then this, whatever it is that you're doing, you need to pivot because that's not the path towards freedom. To get to a place where you're pursuing spirituality or you're healing, especially where you are now, which I would imagine is like on the rise or at the peak of like an emotional state, there is always that fall or that dip in your life that leads you to the climb. What were those trenches like for you? Oh my God. I've had quite a few, you know, uh, people look at me today and they're like, oh my God, Sal, were you always this? this joyful, we always in your purpose. No, honey, no, not at all. This is, this is years in the making. I mean, look, 
the, the whole thing started uh, when I was 23. I got together with a group of friends and we started this international fashion magazine. It took off. It became a really fun, big thing. And then when I was 28, I was involuntarily asked to, to leave the company that I had started. So the betrayal of that, the pain of that uh, was really difficult. And I would perform really well uh, being anxious, being depressed and, and struggling with addiction. I would still perform. People would never know that I was inside. I was crumbling, you know? And that's shocking that people can perform well. I mean, I had, I dealt with anxiety and depression as a college athlete and I played, I started and people are always like, how did you do that? If you were so depressed? And I'm like, I don't know. It's almost like when you're depressed, you're in like a fight or flight mode. And part of you is surviving, even though it feels like you're dying at the same time. Yeah, that's it. So I survived. I was literally, I was surviving and it was, it was, it's quite painful because I mean, I, I don't know about how, how it was for you, but I was not only feeling miserable, but putting on a face, but at some level was making the lives of people around me quite miserable too, because I was just in pain. You know, we talk about this. I, I speak to this often. It's like when people are in pain or feeling crunchy or wobbly, we are unintentionally uh, sort of recreating that nightmare outside of ourselves. So it was in the fall of 2012 that I left the magazine and then I went to Florida to start to research the human mind, the human condition, the heart, spirituality in general. And then I stumbled upon meditation. I stumbled upon a few sort of uh, South Indian gurus. And then I was like, I'm going to go to the South Indian to study at this place with this guru and do these kinds of things. And my dad comes into the house and he says, you should go up to the north. You should study in the Himalayas. You should go study Buddhism with the Dalai Lama. I was like, Dad, what the fuck do you know? Up until now, you haven't shown up for me in any way. Like, you know, you have never even said the word I love you to me in all of my years. I'm 28. I'm 28 at this point. And I didn't say any of that, but I'm telling you just that kind of relationship that we have. He's an amazing human, but just the way he shows love is very like, you know, it's not what I what I thought I needed. Anyways, point being is we, he said to go up to the Himalayas and I did. So spring of 2014, I, I decided to go to India and I did a 10 day silent retreat in, in, in this uh, little small village where the Dalai Lama lives. And then that fall, I went back to do a 30 day silent retreat. And it was a combination of these two retreats. And of course the 30 day one that sort of, you know, it was like a punch to the face, like, yo, you've been fed lies. You've been told that happiness comes from, from external, from accumulation of stuff. You've been told a variety of different things that, uh, that literally have, have cultivated uh, just like a, a nightmare of, of a life and just, you know, really just kept regurgitating my trauma over and over again. And then I made a vow. I said, you know what? I'm going to follow these teachings and I'm going to see what, if anything changes for me. And things started to change. Things started to drastically change. You know, I started to meditate. I started to, to move my body. I started to breathe. I started to, to stop listening to shitty music, to shitty TV. I started to, you know, change the people that I hung out, uh, spent time with. Sort of foundational things that, that really support your mental health and start to open your heart. And then slowly, slowly, I, I had reached a place where it was like the natural next step for me was to share, but I never planned on writing books and any of the things I'm doing now. I was, you know, I went on the strip sort of in despair, looking for, looking for myself, trying to find myself. Uh, and I was never planning to share any of this with anybody. It just, it was like, it's the natural next step. As you feel better, you want to help other people feel, feel better too. There's a lot in there. I have a few <laughs> questions. <laughs> I, and I, I do resonate with your last point. I think that's why I feel inclined to share my experiences is because, you know, it's like you don't want anyone else to suffer the way you did. So you want to catch them before the suffering happens or before they go off the deep end. Okay, two big questions. First, how do you go from being depressed, anxious, using drugs to I'm going to leave the country and go practice mindfulness? I mean, was that a, a quick decision or how did you? It took a year. It took a year. It was a year in the making. And it was a year in the making. It was, it was a sort of a slow build. But here's the thing, though. The moment I started to meditate for five minutes, as soon as I arrived in Florida, I started to already be like, ooh, there's something here. This little deep breath is actually helping me out. <laughs> this little dance is actually ooh, making me feel a little bit better. 
not saying these kinds of words, not being around these kinds of people, not listening to this kind of stuff, not watching these kinds of things. Oh shit, it's actually, wow. I'm not perpetuating the same style of feeling, thinking, and reacting at a slow level, right? At a very low level. Um, and then slowly it was like the buildup. And, and then I started researching, like, where does the word mindfulness come from? It's a Buddhist word. Uh, where does meditation come from? It's been in all these ancient Eastern traditions. I should go find out who these people are. And I have, you know, I've always been pretty radical. So for me, it was like, instead of, you know, just going out to a retreat center, upstate New York, there's so many ashrams and monasteries. I said, no, bitch, I'm going to go to fucking India, <laughs> to the source, because that's how I play the game. I'm going to go to the source. So I arrive in New Delhi, and in three days after being in New Delhi, I'm in Dharamsala, in more specifically, McLeod Gunge, in this retreat center with 80 other people. And, and then I remember hearing the teachers say, everyone is innately good, no matter what kind of past you've lived, no matter what kind of things you've done in your past, everyone is innately good. Your past does not define who you are. And I was like, holy shit, why is no one saying that to anybody? Why are we allowing our past actions to define who we are at the base of our being? Why are we sort of allowing the whole world to run through this you know, the shame spiral, right? That we do something wrong, we are wrong at the core of our being. We do something bad, we are innately bad people. Why are anyone sort of dismantling that view that your actions are not a reflection of who you are at the base of your being, that there is something benevolent at the base of everybody's being? Why is no one saying that? And growing up queer and being queer in the West, you know, I mean, I don't know what your experience is like, but with all of the, the religions here, it's very much about you think you're a mortal sin. So you think you're innately a bad person. I was going to ask, did you think you were not good? If someone telling you you had innate goodness in you was that much of a revelation, I'm guessing you had to think you were not good. That's right. And I think a lot of people who grew up in this part of the world with this kind of indoctrinated idea of like Christianity uh, the mortal sin, homosexuality being bad, whatever, any of this kind of stuff that's so flawed, faulty, and so not what, what Jesus put forth. But the commentary, people who are in a lot of pain commented on these sacred scriptures, and then you have painful stuff being, being told, taught to people. Wrong, faulty, lies. So, but then I grew up like that too. So I grew up thinking that. And then when I arrived in India, she's like, no, honey, everyone's innately good. Everyone is, even the people who are in, incarcerated in, in death row or in the largest refugee camps in the world or people in government who are causing a lot of pain to a lot of people, everyone's innately good. And our work on the spiritual path is to take refuge. It's a very Buddhist word, but it's taking refuge. It's, it's just having recognition that we have that seed of enlightenment, that seed of benevolence at the base of our being. And our work is to is to practice uncovering that seed, is to practicing watering that seed every day instead of watering the seeds of jealousy, of shame, of blame, of victimhood, of scarcity, of harm, of suffering, of, you know, all the stuff that we do a great job at watering every day. To watering the seeds are going to set us free. It's recognizing that benevolence is at the base of everybody's being first. So that it was, it was a pretty big thing. When I tell this to people, we're like, really? That was so big for you? It was like, yeah. And as you go around, you start to recognize that a lot of people actually live with the self-hatred that they're sort of like constantly in the self-loathing. They're like whipping themselves, you know, being so unkind to themselves because it's, it's almost like it's validating that, 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 that sort of like inadequacy that they have, that shame that they have, that unworthiness that they have. Does that make sense? Yes. And it can be sneaky. For me, my self-judgment is sneaky. And I actually had thoughts about this in, in looking at all your work and, and prepping for this. I started, you know, thinking about what you were saying. And I kind of realized like how much I judge myself, whether I'm doing a good thing or a bad thing. It's this voice in my head. And, and I've had times in my life where, yeah, the voice is as dark as you just described. But now in my life, I'd say, oh, I'm happier. Things are better. But I still am so hard on myself. But I'm like at the end of my chair because I'm so excited for everything we're going to dive into today. I do want to ask you this question. I know this is heavy, but I feel like you're open to that considering, you know, all the work you do. You said that your dad had not expressed the words, I love you up until you were in your mid-20s. That's hard. That's heavy. How did the young saw, what were you seeking? What were you trying to do to validate that you were worthy of love 
in those early times when you weren't getting the verbal validation? Because so many people listening probably are seeking or waiting for that validation or approval from someone that they love and maybe it's not coming. So how did it manifest itself in you? And then ultimately, you know, what work did you do on that? Great question. And honestly, I'm 33 right now, about to be 34 in a few days. And he still hasn't said the words I love you to me. (laughs) But now I can laugh at it, you know, because he came to Los Angeles, my new house a few weeks ago. And he built me a bed. I showed him this like Japanese style bed, very expensive bed. And I said, Dad, I work really hard. I help a lot of people. I'm worthy of this Japanese bed and I'm buying it. And he's like, no, let me build it for you. This motherfucker went to Home Depot, honey, bought the wood, painted the wood, built the bed from scratch. If that doesn't say I fucking love you, then I don't know what does. <laughs> yeah, that's a different type of love language. He's, he must be acts of service. That's right. But that kind of thing, I think it's something that we have to sort of uh, uh, accept, radically accept how people show love, radically accept how they show love. But then, you know... There was a huge part of my path of just being very angry at them. You know, how come you never accepted my queerness? How come you never loved me for who I was? How come you never said the words, knowing that I desperately needed it? And, you know, instead of buying an extra gift, just like holding my holding me and like caressing my head and giving me a, a kiss on my cheek and saying, I love you, dude. You're good. You're innately good. Like, how come that was not part of the vocabulary? And, you know, at some point, you just literally, you, you just have to do the, the most profound work, which is what happened to me during the 30-day meditation retreat that I did in Kathmandu, Nepal. It's forgiveness. You have to learn to forgive. Forgive yourself for how you've treated yourself, for how you silenced yourself, for how you harmed yourself. Forgive the motherfuckers who've caused you pain. And then ask for forgiveness of, all those, of those that you've caused pain. So that trifecta of forgiveness was actually the first chapter that I wrote for the new book. It's actually chapter four, but it was the first chapter that I wrote because I, I had spent so much time working on that. My dad has been, a, has been a center of worship in my altar, a center of, you know, a guru of forgiveness in my altar because the relationship can only be what it's like now. And it's so good right now that my publisher is asking me to put together a new book and it's about relationship. It's about relating to people in a spiritual way. And I wonder, no wonder why, because of the way people see my family coming together on, on social media, how impactful that is for them. But it's this many, many years in the works, you know? Let's dive into that because I, on a personal level, relate to this. I almost feel like this is great because you are a teacher. I am the person in life who has a bad relationship I want to fix. And it's like when I think about a conversation where I can go and say, I unconditionally love you and I forgive you, it's like, Ugh. It's like there's this this cement in my throat and I do not want to utter the words because I'm still angry. There's still feelings of hurt. So how do I get past that? That's right. And that's a great question because forgiveness is an independent process. So we're not asked ever in my teaching to ever go up to the person and speak to them. This is an old way of doing this. This is kind of like this indoctrinated view of we're blaming other people for how we feel. We blame circumstances for how we feel. We're constantly putting our fingers out there, right? Saying, my life is miserable because of you. I am happy because of you. It's that style of forgiveness perpetuates the narrative, right? So we're releasing that. We're being radically responsible for our lives. We're being radically responsible for our happiness. So what does that mean? That means you have to do the forgiveness between you and you. You have to work with the part of it that's still harboring, that's still ruminating, that's still catastrophizing on that narrative. And, slow, and it's not a one-time deal. Forgiveness, as I, as I say, it's a very sensitive art. It's also a very fragile art, but it requires you to go back and work on that art regularly. If you have a problem with forgiveness, with letting go, with, which I think a lot of us do because we do a fantastic job at harboring, ruminating, you know, overplaying the past in our minds, hoping to find a different answer. And we forget that the only answers can only arise from the present moment. And the antidote, to becoming present is forgiveness, right? So the, the path of forgiveness and, and the, the practices of forgiveness, there's, there's two main ways that I, that I invite you to think about it. Either do pen to paper, so you're writing a letter to that person, and you do it oftentimes that you're opening the well of unconditional compassion at the base of your being enough that then at some point, there is just a little glimpse of change. And the, the next time that person that, that, 
the person uh, that you're holding on to this view, holding on to this, to this glitch or crunch, visits your mind instead of you saying, you motherfucker, automatically shows up in your mind and it's like, you fucking asshole. It just says, I wish you well. May you be happy. May all your dreams come true. May your life not be a struggle. When you have that kind of play where your mind is automatically supporting your freedom, that's when you know that you're becoming free. But the, the challenge is that a lot of the problems, a lot of the times, our mind isn't unintentionally, right? It's protecting us. Unintentionally, our minds is, is keeping us stuck in this perpetual state of suffering where that memory shows up and we judge the memory, that we judge ourselves, and then we speak unkind things and we do unkind things. Uh, and then it just perpetuates that. But so you could do a couple of things. Like I said, you could put pen to paper and write these letters that you're never sending, that you're burning them at the end. Or you could do any meditation. If you have a stable nervous system, if you have access to a deep belly breath, and I say this with, kind, I say this with kindness because every time I ask one of my students, take a deep belly breath, and they're breathing up here to me. They're giving me the clavicular breath. They're like, I'm like, baby, this is the, this is the anxiety and the depression breath. If you want to do the healing breath, it has to be the third part of your, of your lung, which will technically look like a belly breath. It technically look, virtually look like a deep belly breath. So that breath, if you have access to that breath, then you can close your eyes and do the forgiveness practice with your eyes closed, where you call the person uh, that you had this, that co-created this trauma with, and you, you do your very best effort. And you start with the words, I'm willing to forgive you. The willingness is the key word here. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is the part of it too that it puts you in a hundred percent of control of your like emotional state? Because if I don't need to go to this person, it's so funny that you said that that blew my mind because I mean, I was raised on confrontation. We're a big Greek family. You have a problem with aunt Lucy, you're going and you're talking to her and the whole family is listening. So for me to think about forgiving a situation with someone else and not needing to have a conversation is tough for me to wrap my mind around. But I love the fact that it allows me to make a decision and get to a place without someone else needing to allow me to be there. That's right, my love. And that's it. This is when you take radical responsibility for your life. You're choosing to stop the cycle of harm and you choose to open up to the natural law of karma that we don't have access to see oftentimes with the eyes in our face. But we know that every single action done with the mind with our words or, or, or with our body, it's, it's a package deal, right? Actions come with consequences. It's just, they don't, they're not free, you know? So if you, if you are cultivating these wholesome, kind, compassionate, forgiving states of mind, consequences, the word that we use in Buddhism is, is wholesome consequences will arise. And, and you're also cultivating good deeds. And, and it's a huge thing in Buddhist philosophy is to talk about the cultivation of merit, which is these good actions, you know, and the more you cultivate good marriage, the more your life becomes abundant, you know, and, and I want you, I want to, I want to invite everybody listening to work with that person that you're holding on. If it's Aunt Lucy, is that what you said? Yeah, that was just a joke, but. <laughs> if it's Aunt Lucy, uh, who is that person who's just so, such a flare up for you, such a crunch bomb for you. See if you can actually like expand your field of compassion to, to bring her to be part of that too. Um, and then just kind of like sit back and just notice, notice what kind of what, what happens. You know, I've had so many retreats where we do a whole afternoon of forgiveness and the most bizarre things happen where like someone, I'm, I have the students, I'm like, okay, guys, today's forgiveness. People are really, really resisting doing that work because I'm like, can I send that letter of forgiveness? Like, no, honey, it's, we're doing it for us. We're doing it for our well-being, for the sake of our mental health, right? We're choosing, we are choosing to stop the cycle of harm for the sake of our well-being. And then people are res resisting that, but then they do it. And then the next morning they come and they're like, Sa, I forgave the motherfucker, ex-boyfriend who dumped me, who cheated on me. I chose to forgive them. We haven't talked in two years. And I did this practice with you today. And guess what the first email in my inbox was this morning from him? asking for forgiveness. I was like, oh shit, cute, honey. And I don't make a big deal out of it because I see this so often. And I'm just like, oh, wonderful. I'm so glad you're, you're reaping the benefits of the work within 24 hours. But that's the kind of thing I want you to also open up. Reality isn't, what, isn't only what meets the eye. We've been indoctrinated with that view. So when you think about forgiveness, you're opening up to an entire new perspective of reality, you know, where miracles are the default. 
(laughs) (laughs) You mentioned somewhere in this amazing, we'll call it a prophecy that you're preaching on this podcast right now. You mentioned something about victim mindset and blaming. And I want to break this down because it is such a fine line. I am 100% on board with that internal locus of control. I get to decide how I'm going to live my life and how, I mean, studies show that that is a much more positive, happy way to be. However, there are situations where like whether it's childhood trauma or something Yes, technically you were a victim in a situation, but that mindset's not going to serve you as you move forward. How do you differentiate with with this conversation, especially because given everything nowadays, I know you mentioned you're a queer brown body and there are things in society that you experience that I don't as a white woman. So it just almost seems against the grain that you say you're not blaming others. Yeah, that's right. And that's thank you for bringing this up and this is really edgy for people to hear, right? It's like you, we all have trauma, right? We all have stuff to work out. That's how we're having a human experience, just to work out the kinks, right? And it's the choice becomes: Do you want to, you know, harbor and ruminate and and continuously replay the same sort of movie where it puts you in the victim mindset for the rest of your life, or do you want to acknowledge what happened, accept that things were fucked up, accept that the challenging things did happen to you, or that perhaps you caused them to other people? And then go to the next level with forgiveness, with compassion, and with wisdom, where you make these vows to never doing it again and to help other people. So this is one view of it, okay? And then in the high view, and this is where the edgy, edgy, edgy thing happens, where I always refrain from talking about it because you brought it up, so I find it's necessary for us to talk about. In the Buddhist view, everything that happens in our lives, we have created, and I know it's really hard to understand. It's really hard to, to swallow that, right? Because how could I have been physically abused or, or psychologically abused by X, Y, and Z person? How, how am I the creator of that? But the natural law of karma says that we've been working, and this is edgy, and, and you don't have to drink the Kool-Aid to any of this stuff. I was just going to say, it's also if you believe in this. That's right. You don't have to drink the Kool-Aid. And in my, in my book, I also, you know what, the back and forth is constantly about like what science has to say, what spirituality, what Buddhism has to say. And it's a dance, right? I mean, I did a TEDx talk about transgenerational uh, trauma trauma for a reason. And in, in the book, I sort of debunked that talk. And I did that talk two years ago. And then the book came out this year. So it's like, it's your level of evolution. What lands for you? What, where, wherever you are, whatever the high truth that works for you, work with that. For me, karma is more of a predominant truth for me. It, it lands really deep at the base of my being, but it says that we are responsible for all the good and the bad, that we are the creators of everything good that happens in our lives and everything bad that happens in our lives, regardless of how traumatic it was. And it's difficult because we are constantly saying, I am this way because of them. This, my life is this way because I'm the handiwork of mommy and daddy. And, and, and it's, that's not what, what this, what a lot of these ancient scriptures speak to. And I mean, I don't mean to sound sort of like, uh, you know, listen to this thing, but just whatever it lands, if the sound of my voice sounds like truth to you, work with that, you know, work with just the sound of it too. I mean, like, okay, this is interesting. Let me go do my research. Let me read this motherfucker's book and see what lands. But the truth of it, regardless if you believe in karma or not, Regards if you believe that every action has a consequence, regards if you believe that you're the creator of all the good and the bad in your life, it doesn't matter. The point is staying in victim mindset is not doing you any favors. It's not helping you to progress. So at some point you have to, you know, really see the, the challenge that happened and the, the difficulty that took place between you and the person that you co-created the karma with and see it as a blessing. You know, when I say this, I, I did this post on IG on TikTok initially, and then IG later saying, there's going to come a point that you're going to see every challenge as a blessing in drag. You know, I would have never seen that the, you know, that one guy, Fabio in the locker room calling me a fag when I'm literally 10 years old, how traumatic that was coming home that day and begging to whatever was listening to make me straight, to make me normal. And then perpetuating that victim mindset that I'm, you know, angry at the world because of him. And then all the shit that happened in my early, I mean, just, the layers and layers and layers of trauma and challenges, I could, I could continuously blame them for my life being 
shitty life, but no, I'm fucking thriving. You know what I mean? Like I'm creating so much change in the world for that reason, because I'm choosing to not be in a victim mindset. I'm choosing to accept what happened, forgive them, forgive myself and go to the next stage. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I have a really weird question for you. When is the last time you bawled your eyes out? What do you mean? Like, when is the last time you just cried hysterically? Oh, my God. A few days ago. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I guess the reason I ask is because I ebb and flow with the mindset of I'm thriving. I'm not going to be the victim. And then I have other days where I'm like, it hurts, man. Like these feelings inside, it hurts. And so I guess I'm wondering if you're human just like me. Oh my God, baby. The the work that I have now, the platform that I have now, the internal platform that I have now offers me an opportunity to be with the feelings, but not become them. And to give you the backstory, I have been seeing this guy on and off since March. And it was a whole vision, right? I met him at a silent retreat. Who the fuck wants to study Vajrayana Buddhism? Who wants to study Tantric Buddhism? I don't know. It's very few people who are interested in the that. The whole vision. I love it. You know? You're like, we met at a retreat. And then we... Like the whole vision. You know, the whole thing is interested in this. Interested in being, in being sober. And I'm almost four years sober. Like, in the whole thing. And I'm like, oh my God, he's a fool. Wow. Okay, cool. He broke the silence to say hi to me in the retreat. And I was like, bitch, I have these vows for many, many, many years, way longer than you. I'm not going to break the vows. But then he said hi to me in the bathroom. And I was like, oh, shit, what the towel? The whole thing. I was like, this is, am I getting pranked, honey? Is this, is this, what's happening? And I'm there full on. Like the hair is like looking like a mess. I literally, this is 4.30 in the morning. We're getting ready to sit down to meditate at 5.30. I'm brushing my teeth and he comes out of the shower looking like a snack. And I'm like. <laughs> I'm like, what is going on? And I'm painting the picture because it was so special to me because I've been dreaming of meeting somebody at a retreat, the whole thing, all the things I've, I've shared with you. And then on and off, on and off, on and off until um, uh, two, three weeks ago, he came to LA and I fucking hope he never listens to this because he listens. He probably to won't. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, bless his life. You're amazing, honey. Thank you for teaching me. Thank you for helping me exercise my best qualities. <laughs> oh my God. Thank you to all the challenging people in my life for helping me become a better person. So anyways, he came and I said to him, I was like, I don't want to date anybody else. I want to delete all the apps. I want to put time into you. I want to put time into us. And guess what this motherfucker said to me? No, no, I don't. You should continue to date other people because I can't commit to you. I can't commit to this. And I was like, oh, 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 that hurts. That hurts so bad. And I just have been sort of aching with that and transforming it, but still noticing how he visits me. Yesterday, I had to search for these old photos for my brother. He asked me for all these photos of him and, and a friend of his. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay, fine. I'll do it. So I started going back on my phone. And then, of course, what did I do? Completely forget the project for my brother. And I'm now on a mission. Sa and Brandon's <laughs> photos. Let's go. <laughs> so now I'm creating a whole new folder. And then I noticed it's like, shit, it's 930. I've been here for an hour and a half. Now I'm literally noticing the sadness, literally like taking over my entire body. And in that moment, I didn't reach out for the ice cream or the bottle or the, or the cigarettes I, or, or to just call a friend. I came upstairs, brushed my teeth, washed my face, and set my ass down on a meditation cushion. That is the work. Ooh, I just got chills. Yeah, that's the choice of not being the victim. That's all. If you listen to everything we talked about and that's whole things like, oh, whatever. But that's the choice of you not being the victim anymore. It's that simple choice of being like, you know what? It's nine fucking 30. I just want to go to bed. I just want to put Shit's Creek on. What's that show? Shit's Creek. Yeah. I just want to put that shit on. It's on my screen. But no, I'm going to sit my ass down. My meditation cushion. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in. I'm going to breathe. And then, amazing. It passed. Woke right. up today in the high vision. And then something else happened. Two friends of mine that I'm developing a friendship both told me that they're, that they're attracted to me. And I'm like, oh, fuck. What is going on right now? Can we just be friends? <laughs> and now I'm telling them what Brendan told me. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, oh, honey. What's the karma? Please. You know? Wait. I love 
I love this story because it is an example of doing the work in the moment. I mean, number one, when you cut your, yourself off and you said, thank you everyone for teaching me about me and my life. And then number two, when you said you chose to sit with the emotions, allow space for them and let them surface. That's so important. My one question is in diving full in, right? In not calling your friends, in not watching the show, in not wallowing in self-pity, there is an element of social FOMO, like that fear of missing out. Like if I decide not to call my friend and not to go bitch, it's like, am I missing out on just classic life and those relationships with people? So how do you, I don't know what the word is. Like, how do you, (laughs) how do you go about that? Let me sip the tea for you, honey. I had done enough of that. Okay. Every single one of my friends, even, even here's the thing, even my guru's main attendant, the main disciple of my guru, I have a class with him every week. I'm so, I'm so thankful. And it happens. I'm seeing my personal trainer after this. And then I have, I have a class with, with this incredible super in line being, even him got to hear the tea and like, you're, you're sitting from somebody who's so developed and his mind is so fucking developed. And I'm like, also, this is what happened, honey. I'm going to shave my head. I'm going to get a tattoo. And I did. I got a tattoo. I booked a massage therapist. I told all these things. <laughs> I'm doing all this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, literally, and this is a, an extremely developed human being that a lot of people look up to. And I have this very small hour with this person a week. Thank God for this opportunity that I have to such an impeccable teacher. So close. But I had done enough of it. I had enough, enough of my friends who live in Switzerland, in Bali. Everyone knew for the entire time of this was happening, but I got tired of just saying the same stories over and again and hearing myself say them over again. I was like, oh, Brandon, I am tired of giving the penthouse. Sweet baby. Give me the keys back. You know, the rent in this bitch is very expensive, honey. And guess <laughs> what, bitch? You can't afford it anymore. Give me the keys back. You're being evicted. That is forgiveness. That is the path of no blame. That is the path of no victimhood. But isn't there a sense of slight superiority in the language you just used of like, I am not that you said this, but like, I am better than Brandon. And that kind of mindset or approach, I've been doing a lot of work on the ego. I don't know if you followed the holistic psychologist, but I love her stuff. And I've recently been thinking about how any inferiority or superiority, that's a tongue twister, is ego. So it's tough. I mean, honestly, from, from, from what I'm saying right here, it's equalizing the playing fields from what I'm saying, because I had put him in a pedestal. I had said all my happiness lives on his hand. So me taking away that power puts us both in that human equal field where like, okay, let me not give you ownership of my internal world. Let me not give you ownership of my emotions. Let me give myself accountability over them and, and ownership over them for me and, and taking the keys off of his hand. This is metaphorically speaking, of course, taking the keys off his hand gives me a, uh, an opportunity to take him off the pedestal. So superiority and inferiority are not really, it wasn't really um, the, the language that I'm using. It's not, you know, I'm hoping that it doesn't come across with that. And, uh, and in my work, I don't talk about the word ego at all. I talk about just conditioned mind and just our minds are so deeply conditioned. So in the whole book, you would never hear, or even in any of my teachings ever the word ego though. Well, the conditioned mind is probably, you probably is similar to the ego, but just different ways to express it. But the conditioned mind is a big thing. And I've slowly been learning about all the things I've been conditioned to believe. Something I talk about a lot is body image. And it's just the basic, like who conditioned us to believe this was the standard of beauty, that this was beautiful. And then tracking it back and back and back and realizing we've not really been able to think for ourselves in so many aspects of life because of the way we've been conditioned. Family, the way family conditions us is something I'm growing up to learning different things. You know, I mentioned before we have a big Greek family. Maybe I don't want to always have a family dinner. You know, like I'm slowly growing up and feeling like, you know what? I like space from blood relatives. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand that we need space. But I also if you have access to a loving family, it's a rare gift. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of people in the West have been have been trained to sort of uh, grow up and push their family away. And I'm saying, no, the longest living people on earth, the people who live in the blue zones, the people who live in these incredible ancient civilizations, they all live across you from their family. Their parents live in, it's just the whole commune compound 
style of living, community starts with your family, you know, and we're all wanting that, but now we're trying to find this online and it's like the whole thing is twisted. So I understand if for you, you need a little bit more space. Trust me, I took three years off my family for a reason to travel and to develop my mind and open my heart. But now it's like, I talk to my mom and FaceTime my mom and dad every day. That's a really good point. I actually love this conversation. I haven't even had it with anyone and I've had this on my mind. I agree with you. Like, you know, there is part and my mom who listens to RealPod every single week is probably like fist pumping right now. Like, I love this guy because you just swung in and like defended her. (laughs) Hi, mom. I love you. But here's where I struggle with this. And once again, watch, this has nothing to do with my family, yet I'm blaming them. Oh, shit. I just caught myself in that right now because I feel like I'm not my best self with my family because my patterned emotional habits are stronger than my ability to to fix them. Just the other day, my mom did something. I got sassy with her. And then literally 30 minutes later, after talking to myself for an hour, I, I forced myself to apologize. I said, mom, sorry, I got so emotional with you. It was unnecessary because that is just my old patterns. And so I feel like if I had space, I could be a better version of myself. But then part of me is like, like, oh, so you want the game to be easier for you? You want to like make the stakes easier so you can win? Why can't you just be a better version of yourself right now with the people around you who do love me as much as you said? That's right. That's right. And the way to have space in that moment is by concentrating the mind. You know, it's legit choosing to concentrate the mind every day for five minutes, 10 minutes, up until, you know, an hour, two hours, however amount of time you have. But that's the practice of meditation, right? It's having that ability to to create space in the moment. As mom says the words and we flare up and we're like, Rah! and instead of that little vicious version of ourself popping up and taking over, I call it the walk-in. Like it feels like we've we've had a, a someone else walk in and take over our, our beings. <laughs> walk-in. I love all of your terms. You know, the walk-in comes <laughs> in and you're like, Rah! but you know, instead of letting the walk-in take over, there's, there's a deep breath and you can train your, your, your body and your mind to support your healing, not support your nightmares. And you have to retrain yourself on how you breathe and, 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 and really taking time every single day to concentrate the mind, do one thing at a time. If you're like, stop meditating with my eyes closed for five minutes, it's a nightmare. So what I'm going to ask you to do is to then listen to this podcast and do nothing else. Put the podcast on and lay in your bed. Don't do the podcast and go walk your dog. Don't do the podcast and go wash this. Don't do the podcast and go drive your car. That is perpetuating that narrative that I don't have space. I'm always overwhelmed. Mom says the things and I feel crunched. This is you creating that nightmare for yourself. Now, if you choose to do one thing at a time for periods of your day, and I know so many people are listening, they're like, I have kids, I have to work, I have this, whatever. I get it, honey. Trust me. But you have to understand that multitasking is what's perpetuating your inability to be well, you know? And I say this loud and clear. Trust me, I've taught it, you know, so many huge corporations, so many global stars, and I say the same fucking thing to them. Stop multitasking. And I'm telling these to people who actually, they themselves, these global celebrities, have two phones in their hand and three assistants. And I'm like, this is the problem right here. You know, I can't help you if you're not putting the phone down and doing one thing, you know? So that's what I'm saying. Cultivate space by training your mind with one thing. It could be the breath. It could be a mantra. It could be an image. But the breath, if you could, if you could make friends with the feeling of the breath in your body in its natural state, not manipulated in its natural state, if you could literally intimately experience the breath in your body, your life will radically change. The way you see your mom as being a crunch bomb no longer will be that. Follow-up question. What about people who are afraid of feeling the breath? People that multitask, oftentimes we get the baseline analysis is you're hiding from your emotions. You don't want to pause because then you're going to be forced to sit with it. Right. So what, what about the person that's scared right now? So I don't want to sit with my emotions. I'm afraid what's going to come up for me if I just lay on my bed and stare at the ceiling. Oh, I wish I had something, that, you know, tender and sweet and like kind to say, but my love, the truth is like, you don't want to live the same movie 75 years in a row. You don't want to become a heart attack statistic or a stroke statistic or a cancer statistic by you not being with your emotions, transforming them and moving them out of your system. You're going to become a statistic. I'm sorry, my love. Stress is the number one cause of death. We know this. 
You know this. You're smart enough. You're listening to this podcast. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to everyone listening. It's like, you know that stress is the reason why our bodies are becoming, uh, you know, are decaying. So instead of you, uh, you know, doing everything you possibly can to distract yourself from being with the difficult emotions, you first relearn how to breathe, right? So a technique that I want to sh- help you to then access that spacious awareness is I call the straw breath. I want you to sip the breath in through your mouth and then out through your nose. But you have to do it. Uh, you have to switch the breathing pattern from being anywhere from 12 to 16 times per minute, which that's like historically been the anxious and the depressed breath, according to, uh, to science. And the healing breath is four to six times per minute. So that's the breath that's like, that in itself, it just, oh shit. Who am I? Oh my God. All the, all the fears and worries and the crunch. It's like, okay, you look so much more beautiful than, than you did two minutes ago. I look so much more beautiful. The colors are more vibrant. That is the ass. Relearn how to breathe. That gives you spacious awareness. What happens then you're able to see the present moment without the, all the past baggage. Does that make sense? You're able yeah. to face an experience in the now without all the past conditioning. That's the problem. When we are not concentrated, we are responding to the now with all of the past. With a concentrated mind, you're responding to what's in the present from a, 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 a place that's like free of conditioning. I mean, as best as possible. This is going to take a long process, but that's what the offering is. Does that make sense? It does. I want to put it, pose a challenge. Listeners, right now, pull over your car, stop walking. Uh, put your computer away, pause the podcast and take five, six deep breaths the way Saw just showed you and then come back. Great job. We're so proud of you. (laughs) They're back now. Um, I love that. Wow. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your insight today. I I'm feeling super inspired, especially because I love this idea of the spiritual sassiness, right? It's personal. It's unique to you. And thanks for sharing everything today, being so real and vulnerable. I think so many people probably needed to hear everything that you expressed and going through, you know, that that minor little heartbreak hiccup, but to claiming back the keys. So thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. And, and, you know, start small, like don't, 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 look at my routine and be like, oh shit, I need to get there. It's like, no, but this is seven years in the making. Like give yourself five minutes in the morning, five minutes in the afternoon, five minutes at night, but pause, intimately experience your breath, you know, and just be, be radically aware who are the people, the places, and the things that you are spending time with. Are they supporting your mental health or they're uh, deteriorating your mental health? And then slowly start to like, you know, Clean up the clean it up a little bit. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much. Of course. If you enjoyed this podcast episode with Saw D. Simone, be sure to check him out on Instagram. You can follow him at Saw D. Simone. And also his book, Spiritually Sassy, is out everywhere now. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Real Pod. I'm so grateful for you. I hope you enjoyed this. If this episode helped you in some way, send it to a friend. Share it with someone who you think could benefit from hearing what Saw had to say today. Share the love and continue to connect with those around you in your community. If you have not yet left a review or a rating for Real Pod, I would so appreciate to hear your feedback. You can head to iTunes and do that. And also make sure you are subscribed to Real Pod wherever you stream your podcast. We are here every single Wednesday with fabulous guests and the realest conversations. Thanks again for listening today. And I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week. And as always, keep it real.